Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm Charles Bromesco. And I'm Anna Bogutsko. On the show this week, Brad Pitt has an eventful trip to Kyoto on the bullet train. Flooding Thai caves threaten 13 lives. And on Film Club, we're catching up on the horrifying train to Busan. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. So, two podcast faves on this week for quite, um, shall we say, an interesting week. We've subjected you to some quality and non-quality things. Um, but let's do a little catch-up with you both. Anna, podcaster, writer, you know, programmer extraordinaire, what have you been up to lately? Um, I had to remind myself when I saw the show notes. So I've had I've had a fun week. I've had a couple of projects announced. So we launched a program for the Edinburgh International Film Festival, where I've been programming for the last couple of months. Uh, we've got After Sun that's opening the festival and After Young that's closing the festival and a whole bunch of really fun stuff there in the middle. We got two late editions, which were two favorites of mine from Cannes this year, Funny Pages and My Super Eight Years, the Annie or No documentary. I don't think anyone has stand as hard for Annie or No moving to movies as I have. <laughs> but, um, and then I've also announced, uh, well, the poster and the overall theme for the big BFI horror season that I've co-programmed with uh, Dream Team, Michael Blythe and Kelly Weston for the BFI. It's basically going to be taking over the BFI South Bank and the UK in general from mid-October until the end of the year. So post-LFF, it's going to be all horror every day at the BFI and every other um, UK genre festival and UK cinema. And it's called In Dreams Are Monsters, which is uh, really fun and kind of cheesy, but I love both of those things. It's awesome. Where does that title come from? It actually comes from a short story that I really love by Delmar Schwartz called In Dreams Begin Responsibilities. Uh, and I think, well, horror films are come from our nightmares and our deepest fears. And it, the way that we structure the program is looking at the mythical and the, the supernatural, very much not at real life horrors. So we're looking at different, different monstrous archetypes that have informed genre filmmaking from pretty much the very beginning of cinema history. So that's... That's a, a slightly uh, both referential and dreamy way of referencing what we're trying to do with the program. God, that sounds absolutely amazing. I will be hitting you up for uh, some free tickets as I did with your wonderful Gaspar Noe season. One hundred percent. Yeah, there's a couple of things. There's a couple of films that I would really like to see with you specifically, Layla, and just watch your face for the entire film if you haven't seen them before to see your reaction. 
Christ, no pressure on my face. Um, <laughs> Charles, we've also got congratulations in order for you. You've got a new book. Your first oh. book. Yes, no, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. I, uh, I, I, this was pointed out to me. Someone was like, you have to learn how to accept talking about this because yeah. so far, whenever someone brings up the new book, you just go, oh, and then try to change the subject. Um, <laughs> but no, yeah, it's, it's really exciting. It's going to be a lovely uh, uh, coffee table hardcover book about color and cinema as explored through 50 movies of my choosing. Um, and so I came into this sort of maybe with an idea of, of what I would do, but I, I learned so much more than I thought there was even to know about this. I, I didn't even realize like how little I knew of the technical processes, but like by which a camera turns light into picture. I, uh, I, I having studied movies my whole life, didn't really know how that works. And uh, yeah, I, I learned a lot and I'm excited to share it, uh, all of the research I've done with, with people. It's very interesting because there's been so much kind of film discourse about you know and a lot of it seems to be coming out of like the absolutely overburdened uh, overburdened sfx teams between behind blockbusters but Mm -hmm. color is something that is really lacking in a lot of these big releases yeah yeah so uh the very last section in the book which my hope was that would bring us up to something that feels like the present day is black panther which um the whole idea is that i start out talking about this uh, kind of sludgy look that has overtaken so many big budget movies now and i sort of introduce black panther as the antidote to that which i think is sort of an atypical superhero movie atypical marvel movie in that it has this really you know vibrant sense of color and it also has a very canny use of color where the you know all the different tribes in Wakanda are color coded, but also in a very purposeful way that kind of talks about their origins and their identity as a tribe. It's a it's really uh, very involved, you know, with the costume designers and production designers, and so yeah, yeah, I definitely address that, but also try to like look at you know what the good side of all of that has has brought us. Yeah, I I mean one it does. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, but I'm still kind of have seared into my brain that man in kind of the incredible green Oswald Botang suit with the matching plate lip. Yeah, that's um, I think that's Isaac de Bangalay, uh, who's just the coolest dude to have ever lived. He did movies with Jim Jarmusch and whatnot. Thank you to him. He's whilst Anna's <laughs> program may be haunting my nightmares. He haunts my dreams. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get on to the movies. First up, Bullet Train. Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member. You'll receive exclusive perks and an insider's view to the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. We're thrilled to announce that our member-exclusive Discord server is officially open. Join now and start chatting with other film lovers and the Little White Lies editorial team. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to the SETI HQ page for a detailed breakdown of our plans. Now on to the movies. Unlucky trained killer Ladybug wants to give up his dangerous life, but is pulled back in by his handler Maria Beetle in order to collect a briefcase on a bullet train heading from Tokyo to Kyoto. On board the train, he and the other competing assassins discover their objectives are connected. So, Charles, 
I wasn't able to see this because it was my anniversary yesterday and, uh, you know, big red flag and film criticism. They were showing this exactly once to the press the day before it came out. Well, I was going to say you 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 hit it big because uh, not only congratulations on having an anniversary and on having love in your life, but love has protected you from <laughs> from this experience, which I, I wish I had had an out as good as it's my anniversary. I actually that got me out of something good earlier this year. I think I didn't have to go see the Buzz Lightyear movie because I was going to uh, do anniversary things. No, but uh, as, as you can tell so far, not a fan of this film. I, I was <laughs> not, I was not all that taken with the bullet train, um, which I, I, I guess where to start, right? It's uh, I guess my issue with this was, was the tone of this action movie, which I feel is very, very stale. It is, doing sort of 90s uh, slickster Tarantino pastiche, which was a big thing in the 90s and was lame and played out even then. And now like uh, 30 years later, we're trying to go back to that well and see if people have forgotten about the tropes from Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs. And maybe we can present those as if for the first time and no one will notice. We notice, not just film critics, but people with memory of the 90s will all notice. And we know, you know, not to buy into this uh, splashy character introducing title card nonsense or this, you know, wormed over banter about pop culture references, which is like, that is maybe the most egregious knockoff Tarantinoism when um, two of the assassins aboard this train who want to get a piece of Brad Pitt, uh, who are played by Aaron Taylor Johnson and Brian Tyree Henry are constantly bickering back and forth about who gets which code name, which of course is the Reservoir Dogs thing with the Mr. Pink and Mr. Brown and what have you. And uh, then also Brian Tyree Henry goes on this whole monologue and this interminable running joke about how he loves Thomas the Tank Engine, which as I understand is called something else in the UK. Uh, no, it's and called Thomas the to... Tank Engine. Oh, it is also, called Thomas the Tank Engine. Okay. I, I did do a little reading at least, and that is from the novel that this is based on, strangely enough. <laughs> So this is what I've heard as well, which I mean is like, that is one defense uh, for filmmaker David Leitch, I suppose. But you could also just say, I mean, these problems are baked into the book then, that this is a book written in the same kind of hoary tone that I found to be played out in the movie. So I feel like it's a lateral move because you're not the first person who's pointed that out and that is a valid thing. But I also feel like that doesn't totally exonerate the movie from what it's doing. Fair. Uh, well, we were talking about sludgy blockbusters earlier. Anna, did you at least kind of buy into the aesthetic of this? I mean, this is the guy from behind John Wick. You'd kind of think that he would be good with a beautiful image. I mean, you used the word before, Leila, when you introduced this episode, uh, that we were subjected to these films. And <laughs> I think subjected is the right word. Uh, I couldn't agree more. I actually commented about this at the time when I saw it last night, that it is this, it feels like a ripoff of a ripoff. It's a copy of a copy of a copy. It's a copy of a sort of early 2000s gangster films that's trying to be a Tarantino film and they're getting the important bits wrong. But I think it's also aesthetically infused by a sort of a brand of action that in a way, I'm not going to use the word pioneer here, but that has been kind of popularized by David like in the John Wick films, the work that he did on Atomic Blonde. And I was actually really disappointed with the aesthetic with the style of this film, it did not look as stylish as I expected. I thought at least if the plot was nonsensical and the dialogue was trash and the performances were kind of more glorified cameos than anything else, we would at least get some really, really sharp action sequences. And we really didn't. I think there is only one fight scene between Brian Terry Henry and Brad Pitt that I thought was a 
I can mildly remember. Mind you, I saw this film last night. That's less than 24 hours ago, mm. and I've already forgotten most of it, except the Thomas the Tank Engine monologues, and that's plural. He does the oh, wow. Thomas the Tank Engine monologue several times throughout the film as though it was too complicated a notion for us to understand. The first time he explains it, it keeps can, getting explained. You can tell that he thinks that that joke is just going to kill by how many times he goes back to it. He's I know. like, everyone loves this bit. I might as well... Remember that more. bit? Remember yeah, that yeah. bit? Remember that bit from five minutes ago? I bet you forgot because, you know, there's so many flashing lights and so many neon things. Well, and also the fact of remembering things from five minutes ago, this movie has so many chronological, you know, uh, bullshitty tricks for, for no reason other than to just keep things, you know, moving and twisting and turning, which is the, I mean, that's the big Tarantino thing of having mm. the flashbacks to explain something that's about to happen. But this movie does so in like such a superfluous way at the, as you'll recall, at the climax of the movie, in the middle of the action, we stop for like, you know, 45 seconds so we can see the origin story of a water bottle from like a- That might actually- cam. That might actually be either the best or the worst thing about that movie because it's either the best, most in-your-face product placement I can possibly imagine for a film or <laughs> the most egregious type of storytelling. I've even, I think it's insulting to use the word storytelling when talking Congratulations about the Congratulations to the good people at Fiji Water for this huge get. Someone in marketing is getting a promotion. Oh, yeah. So He's just, he watches this movie and he hears cha-ching, <laughs> cha-ching, cha-ching. But yeah, I think, I think there's something quite curious which does weirdly feel old-fashioned weirdly feels old-fashioned to me about this movie and it's this confusion between story and an over-convoluted plot it's like as if we if we put in more characters if we put in more weird twists if we put in more flashbacks and over explanations of everyone's supposed motivation then that's going to substitute or you know that's going to make people think that there is a story and a propulsion to this film that simply isn't there for a film that is literally set on a hyper fast train that has a starting point and a destination point and is and and is billed as an action comedy it feels so stale and static it really felt unmoving to me it felt really boring towards the third um the third act and i really really just couldn't wait for it to be over to be honest i just i wanted to get off the train i'm sorry for the re- <laughs> i'm sorry for the train metaphor but they kept all, banging on about trains we have to all go there sooner or later <laughs> everyone is going to do the train metaphor because you can't not you know i i wanted yeah. to disembark from the movie <laughs> <laughs> So we're talking about failure as an action film, failure as a comedy. Um, do we at least have an interesting depiction of Japan here? Oh, boy. oh dear! <laughs> <laughs> this is magical kind of podcasting a, moment. There, <laughs> this has been the big bugaboo of, of these movies. This bullet train, I feel like, is the zillionth post John Wick neon slathered assassin action film that we've gotten, and because the martial arts moves are all taken from Hong Kong cinema and Japanese cinema. Uh, They always feel an obligation to kind of acknowledge that via setting, but it's also done in such a superficial way because the presence in Japan is reduced to like these really, really broad cultural signifiers. Like there's a big knockoff Hello Kitty mascot that is played on for jokes multiple times there's um what else uh there's a scene there, there's a bunch of like yakuza stuff which seems to be the only way the western imagination can conceive of japanese culture like there are always people killing for the honor of their family everywhere you go which is like such a uh old idea i don't know what, what did you think i mean i agree with you i think 
having I read a little bit about the the whitewashing of this movie after after it came out because I didn't realize it was based on a on a quite a, a popular novel. Um and the author himself has been questioned about his opinions on the fact that they basically westernized the the film's characters in order to make it quote unquote appeal internationally because apparently that's the only way you can sell a movie internationally. Not that it's been disproven multiple, multiple times. But yeah, I just I don't think the film has any intention to say anything about Japan. I think it uses signifiers of Japanese culture essentially as props um, from the, you know, from the way that the intertitles are presented, from the use of Japanese uh, characters or the, the kind of visuals, the really recognizable visuals of Japanese history and the history of the Yakuza. All of those are just sprinkled as though they're toppings they're not really a fundamental part right. of the film in any kind of way they're just little reminders for us it's like oh by the way Brad Pitt is in Japan did you know he's in <laughs> Japan by the way this is the reason why there's so many Japanese people around although actually a, there isn't it's mostly Americans and Brits there's a running joke about how he loves wasabi peas which is oh, like God, very yeah. much a, just came back from a semester abroad in Japan kind of thing, yes I feel. <laughs> Um, it's very much that vibe and it's tricky because i mean like if tarantino is their north star it's clear that with this they're trying to do a kill bill one but the difference there is that all of the signifiers that tarantino stuffs that movie with are from japanese cinema not Mm -hmm. this idea of japanese culture and so he is actively doing something that is rooted in artifice that is rooted in you know presentation and performance and this kind of thing whereas this movie seems more interested in this very touristic notion of the country itself rather than like its cultural or cinematic heritage. I think touristic is the right word because Tarantino, as we know, is a consummate cinephile. So he does know Japanese cinema. He does adore it. He's willing to admit he's seen this through a movie theater rather than... Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that and that translates and it works. And it is a clear definition of of boundaries of this is what I'm working from and this is what I'm looking to achieve uh with my um kind of you know pick and mixing of things. But I don't think David like ever even had any sense of any interest or any sense of grounding or or even any profound um respect for Japanese culture in a way. I don't think that this film intends that in any way and i don't know if that's almost semi-respectable like what are we to expect from bullet train there is we're not going to expect commentary or respectful depictions of japanese culture from this film in a way i'm like well it's doing exactly what it what it's supposed to be doing which is nothing (laughs) that is like that is the grimmest way to think of this like we all know what we're getting into here let's not make this something it isn't that's like such a morbid way to think about movie going (laughs) it probably kind of is i'm like i know you i know you're gonna give me a dumb movie where a bunch of people made a bunch of money and you sold a bunch of product placement episodes essentially in the middle of your feature film that's getting theatrically released and well i i i went i went to know what the deal was i forget um there was some really heinous car placement i i forget which brand it is but we get you know the close-up on the logo we get like three different car commercial shots of it being shiny before uh i think it gets crushed by like a lamppost yeah. and a uh, visual gag yeah Lot, we also get we also get very intense close-ups of a you know a, a sweaty bottle of Corona beer. Oh my god, that's right! At, at like a there's a we go to a Mexican wedding and someone mm-hmm. cheers with the label po- pointed right <laughs> outwards, just so. Yes. Oh my god. 
Well, I mean, we've it does seem that this is at least kind of the final stage of film capitalism, where we have kind of film as product placement, and then all the news with like Batgirl today and 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 Scoob, where it's just like films as tax write offs. We're not even going to show them to you. <laughs> that is uh-huh. pretty hard to wrap one's head around. I can't uh, wait for the spinoff movie about the Fiji water bottle. <laughs> A whole ninety minutes about that origin bottle. origin film. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I will book you on this to discuss that and make you angry again. Oh, dear. <laughs> but the the if... one thing, if we if we do have time, the one thing I wanted to ask about, yeah. I'm here as an American speaking with, with British colleagues, is that uh, there are two or, or two or three terrible British accents in this movie. Or at least I thought they were. I'm not a Brit. Maybe where were so they? I'm not a Brit either. So actually, let's both pose this question to Leila because... Well, who I didn't would... see the movie? I don't yeah. know. I've seen oh. the trailer and they have were bad. S- yeah, because I, I was. I don't know why people told him he can do that. So I, I wonder if more... that stage of career where he's surrounded by yes men and it's just kind of just like, yeah, you sound great. You sound well, like I'm sorry. I was almost more offended by Aaron Taylor Johnson, who is actually English, doing a really <laughs> bad Cockney accent. I was like, what is happening? Why is why is the American actor doing a better English accent than you are, mate? This is this feels wrong. <sighs> That's what I love about Britain is that even Brits can do a bad accent from <laughs> elsewhere in the, uh, the yeah. same city, uh, which I really appreciate. But then again, I went to see the movie with someone who is British and he was not offended by that. So maybe it's just me. Well, I mean, I just it's, I feel like the standard is so low. I seem to be the only person that could hear that how bad Tessa Thompson was in Thor. People get away <laughs> with very, very little just kind of broad cockney nonsense nowadays um, i guess i'm trying to think i guess the american equivalent of that if, if like the the popularity of the cockney accent would be if everyone in american cinema like a brit brits kept coming over and being like i'm walking here hey oh <laughs> and tried to be like really new york that's my only that's the only way i can put that in terms i can understand <laughs> I would imagine that if uh, somebody started imitating a really specific American accent, it would be really unsettling if everybody, every single British yeah. person just started speaking in a really thick Boston accent. That would be <laughs> really messed up. But I kind of oh. want to live in that universe. Well, I mean, I don't really know the origin of it, but like that Kate Winslet one in Mayor of e- um, Easttown seemed to be like right on the money. Yeah, why well, I, I had read that because you know you don't see this. Uh, they're in Pennsylvania, I'm pretty sure, and that is an accent that you rural Pennsylvania does not get a lot of play in the American cinema, American television, and so I think she had to do like extensive research to know that she was on the right track. And uh, my one friend who was from the area was like, "She got it. That's that's how we talk. Everyone says water like water." Well. Yeah. If only the people behind Bullet Train had such attention to detail. Um, let's get some <laughs> scores on this before we move on. Anna, do you want to go first? In anticipation, enjoyment, and in retrospect. In anticipation, zero. Enjoyment, two. In retrospect, can I do minus five? <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's got worse since I've given it a bit of thought. You gave Morbius minus five, so I think that's kind of... <laughs> that's, your, that's your go-to. Yeah, that's that's my brand. I just hate movies. I hate motion pictures. Charles, <laughs> <laughs> what about you? Uh, actually, I reviewed this for the site here, Little White Lies, and so I will stick with my scores there, which I believe were three, one, one, three on anticipation, one on enjoyment, one in retrospect. Uh, usually, with movies like this, the 
saving grace is that they're very fun in the moment and then they break apart like little dry sand castles as soon as you leave the theater even this one I was like so mad at how unfunny it was and that I just was not enjoying myself or, or having a good time in any way who is Joey King sorry 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 <laughs> Joe okay Joey King was my biggest disappointment because she's great in the act and I was that's so the one where she has Munchausen's bitter. by proxy, yeah. right? Yeah, 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 yeah. her mom does in mm. well, the the character of her mom does in that series. She's so great when she's working with good material, but this is again just too broad. It's nothing. There's nothing. The there. one time I remember seeing her in something else was uh, at a screening where I was the only one in attendance, public screening of the very little scene James Franco directed film Zeroville which is an adaptation of a novel that she yes. kind of stars in mm-hmm. and was buried theatrically and not written about because everyone had just at that point had enough of James Franco and his whole unsavory shtick. Um, and so that mm. is what I think of her as being from. And between that movie and this one, I, I worry about her and her career. Oh, well, definitely watch the act. Probably okay, the best good. that's done. good. It's, it's the act in the kissing booth. I've so I've seen the Kissing Booth movies actually. That's a lie. So I, I saw those as well. I have to see all the Netflix movies, and also does not inspire confidence in her acting. To be honest, mm. oh bad. Sorry, sorry, Joey King, <laughs> who I know listens to this podcast. Yeah. So if you've got thoughts on these films, email Truth and Movies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at lwlives. Next up, Thirteen Lives. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The film chronicles the events of the 2018 Tam Luang Cave Rescue that saw a junior football team and their coach trapped in a cave for 18 days. 
though, Anna, I mean, I would always say that Ron Howard is kind of known as a competent director. Was this much more than that for you? I think that's the perfect word to describe him, if I'm honest. I can't I can't really say terrible things about Ron Howard. I also can't be terribly effusive about his work. He I mean, for I don't think such a thing exists as a Ron Howard fan. Um you can be a fan of some of his movies, you know, Polo 13, Cocoon, even Splash, great stuff. But this film just feels incredibly uh, traditional. There's nothing terribly wrong about it. Uh, I can't really fault it in any particularly strong way. Uh, I personally did not follow the events of the rescue. So in I didn't I wasn't familiar with the details of the story. I did read up a bit about it after I watched the film. And I think that kind of was in benefit of my viewing of it, because with things based on true events, particularly quite recent ones, because this is the, these this rescue happened in 2018, you it kind of takes out the propulsion of the story. What are you watching if you already know how it ends, if you already know what the re- reaction was from the, the public at large? What do you know? You know, if you already know who the villains and the heroes of the story are and where they end up, if there's any casualties of the 13 people that they were um, tasked with rescuing. So the main shtick of the movie kind of works a bit, worked a bit better for me because I had no idea of what, what would end up happening in there. But I have to say, at two and a half hours, it felt <laughs> bloated uh, for a narrative that is incredibly uh, straightforward. And that's not saying, um, you know, that's not necessarily denigrating it. It's straightforward. It's very normy. It's very by the book. It's very traditional filmmaking. It doesn't try or aim to go any deeper. It has a mission and the whole film follows the um, the completion of that mission. I'm not going to kind of say how many kids are saved by the end for in case anyone didn't follow the real case just as I did and wants to find out who lives and who dies but um it it felt like a like a comfortable if overbloated streaming movie I don't which feels very much in line with Ron Howard I don't think he's necessarily pushing himself I can see especially in some of the underwater um cave rescue scenes uh which i imagine would have been very complicated to shoot and quite intense for the actors involved in particular because it feels and looks very claustrophobic very dark and an underwater filming by all accounts and everyone i've ever spoken to who's done underwater filming is a massive pain in the ass but also a huge creative and logistical challenge um so it feels like something that might be appealing to a filmmaker who's pretty much done a lot of things in his career has done really traditional kind of some very um mildly innovative films very commercial fair documentaries and stuff and now kind of wants to maybe stretch stretch of muscle do something a little bit a little bit interesting for him to film but other than that i just don't this this is like essentially a glorified docudrama and the presence of Colin Farrell and Joel Edgerton and Viggo Mortensen as kind of the everyman sort of, you know, fan divers. So it's just kind of casual amateur divers. It doesn't necessarily add star power to the film and it doesn't need to. They're essentially playing very, very tame um, characters who have something to do. It's almost like a to-do list with a little more emotional um, resonance. But and and higher stakes. But to be honest, this film felt 
unnecessary to me is the right word interesting I mean I I followed this really really closely back okay. in 2018 when it was happening I knew exactly what the result was going to be I knew mm-hmm. what happened when I was kind of sad that Elon Musk at no point suggests a submarine that is in film. okay I'm glad someone's <laughs> bringing that up yeah because that is my main sticking point as well I mean, I knew, I knew this was a. Uh, I knew this would come up when we when we spoke about this film. And okay, I'm just gonna say it. I think it's the right choice that they chose in the film not to bring that up. But I mean, knowing what kind of what was going to happen, Charles, did you still kind of enjoy any of the tension? I found it very stressful to watch. I must say, those like claustrophobic scenes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, without you know spoiling the ending, I do want to think about how messed up would it have been if they had made a movie about an unsuccessful mission where everyone died. Uh, <laughs> I would love to see the Ron Howard like fatalistic, just no hope version of that movie. Um, you know, it's funny you say that because I interviewed Joel Edgerton just before when he was doing Underground Railroad just before this, and he hmm. told me that like pandemic, he felt that like what the culture needed was just a film that was a win. And I he then he told me Ron Howard, and I was like, oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, Ron Howard <laughs> definitely thinks of himself as the guy to give that to America too. He really, uh, I, I, I can't claim to know the mind of Ron Howard, but he, I think, is definitely considers himself like one of America's, you know, dad filmmakers in that respect. Where he's just like, let's give him something to cheer for. Um, knowing the outcome of this, I guess I, I was still involved in the sequences of them rescuing these people. It was just, it was everything else that does not do it for me because. There is, in this two and one half hours long movie, which uh, at times can make you feel like you were in a cave waiting to be rescued by Joel Edgerton. Um, In this movie, there is a lot of stuff, obviously, that is not them in the cave, uh, which I I feel like little Millhouse asking when they're going to get to the fireworks factory. Uh, I just want them to, to start spelunking down there after long enough, instead of discussing and reiterating all of the dangers over and over again, so that we understand just how perilous this uh, mission is, which I feel like we would have, we, we can perceive that just from looking at how frigging tight it is in there. Sometimes I see um, recommended to me on my Instagram tab, there'll be these videos of people who like to shimmy down in the little gaps between rocks and like go mm-hmm. into quarries and stuff. And that upsets me so much. Uh, and in, I guess this movie gave me a slightly diluted version of that same terror where I was like, why are you going in there? Why would you do this? At least in this movie, the people have a good reason that their lives at stake. These other people are just hobbyists and out of their minds. But uh, it's it's it is what it is. It's fine. Um, it is an improvement because you know the last Ron Howard movie that I saw was the Hillbilly Elegy, uh, which go. was just dreadful stuff. And so I guess I am in a sense relieved to see Ron Howard being like, maybe let's put Ron Howard filmmaker of ideas to rest for a moment and (laughs) return Ron Howard filmmaker of sensation and effect, which is at least the best mode that he knows how to do. Uh, Yeah. I think I'm a little warmer on this than you guys. I watched it with my dad, which is exactly what it's supposed to be. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's perfect. Um, But it was one of those things where even like knowing that these are tiny tunnels and it's underwater and how dangerous it is and stuff like actually seeing the visuals and it's a particularly like sad scene where you just appreciate how short a breath is like how short the windows are together if if, if you lose obviously we all know that if we lose (laughs) that like you're fucked but actually the quickness with which it happened I thought he framed really well. 
I found that seemed very interesting. And, you know, I'm really, really bad at tiny spaces. So mm. this um, was kind of, I don't know, lizard brain was going off. Is there um, such a thing as claustrophilia? Because I always find myself very soothed and like, I love being I'm in small enclosed spaces. I think there is a thing. I find myself very comforted by smaller spaces and very <laughs> anxious in like very vast open spaces where there is, you know, no end in sight. Yeah, no, that is actually something that I also found comforting in this because I had a mm. sense of like, couldn't be me, wouldn't have gone into that cave in the first place. <laughs> I, I would simply <laughs> not go down into the Thai yeah. cave. <laughs> It seems like a bad idea for a school trip. Let's be honest. <laughs> Why? Yeah, that little uh, the the football coach because it is yeah. it's um it's that that's the first scene is to see all these mm. Thai kids playing football with their coach and he's like, all right, field trip down into this uh, dank dank cave. I will say the thing that I, I'm kind of glad that it was left uh, as it was in the film, but the little brushstrokes of competitiveness and the. Uh, this, the existence of a world of amateur cave diving and deep diving and uh, the envies and the competitiveness between them, I really enjoyed, especially around Joel Edgerton's character. Yeah, that's actually so maybe the thing that the movie gets best and feels like most authentically observed is that mentality of like mm. the way a hobbyist guy, like guys with really intense hobbies are, like volunteer firefighters, like people who like to fly planes. Like there is this mentality of com competition and like one-upsmanship and just hunger for adventure that you see is kind of why they start to do this. And then they realize that this is a more serious thing than just, you know, bobbing on down to a, to a cave. And so, yeah, I got to give him credit because that's a pretty solid moral core, uh, good arc yeah. for the, for the movie. I feel like there's two movies that could have happened here. And on the one hand, we get the Ron Howard special of, you know, a, a very lovely, is not the right word, but it's very watchable, very goes down easily made. Yeah, it goes down easy. It's a very Sunday afternoon watch with your dad or with your parent. Um, you know, you're not going to feel too deeply, but you might shed a little tear because it, isn't it isn't it nice when people come together? But on the other hand, there's a whole nother thing that could have been made about people like amateur danger seekers who pretend to be motivated by the right thing, but actually are either chasing glory or chasing recognition or going after supposedly helping others, but under false pretenses, because actually it's all about who goes out, who comes up on top and who's actually looked as as the most helpful one. Who wins at being a better person is the other film that could have been made based on this case, which I would watch because I just like to see the worst in people. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I will say, which is maybe damning with faint praise, is that the accents I thought were pretty solid throughout. And like maybe after something like Bullet Train, kind of just to see like some little home counties voice from Viggo Mortensen was kind of enough to make me happy. I agree. That's all. I, that's all I have to contribute on the accent work. It's good. Let's. <laughs> well done. Better than bullet trained is what I'm hearing. Yeah. I mean, that bar is not, that's not even a bar. Not a super high bar. No, it's not. Well, let's now, just, uh, just for, for our reference, I know we had mentioned very briefly Musk before, which of the, the guys is the one who he said was a, a nonce? Was it Joel Edgerton? No, no, he's not one of the main guys. It's a guy who oh. kind of, he doesn't go into the dive. He's a bit taller. He's got like a larger nose. He's there. He's there when they arrive. Oh, okay. Sort he's like their liaison there. Okay. I, I, yeah. Yeah. Well, you disappointing. Know, justice for that guy. 
justice for that guy, <laughs> who I think was revealed to not be a nonce. And he was no. like, you can't just say that about people. That's a pretty big thing to, to just say about someone. Yeah, especially when you've got like 20 million followers. Yeah, people tend to listen to people with 20 million Twitter followers. Well, I mean, if this does nothing else, if it pisses off Elon Musk, I say net win for the world. Job well done. Absolutely. Uh, let's get some scores on this before we move on to our excellent film club film. Anna, do you want to go first? Um, I'm going to go with one, three, three. A very unenthusiastic three. Seems about right. Charles, yeah. what about you? <laughs> Uh, I would I would go two on anticipation just because the memory of uh, Hillbilly Elegy is still so fresh in my mind's eye. Uh, but then I'd go three on enjoyment as well, which is like nice, solid, double up the middle kind of movie. Uh, and then I would go retrospect, maybe two. Again, not not too much for me to chew on in that film. They they got those kids. Uh, they get the kids, and then I move on with my day, which is fine. That's <laughs> I, I realize that that is really all some people want from the movies, and uh, I'm not sure I can blame them. Work is work is hard, and sometimes you just need to watch some Thai children get excavated from a cave at the end of at the end of a long day. Put that on a pillow. Put that. <laughs> uh, yeah, probably for me, two for Howard, five always for Joel Edgerton. I freaking love that guy. Uh, for an enjoyment because I had watched it in the perfect environment. I had my dad. I had a calippo. I had a glass of white wine. I was very happy. Um, and I think it was even a Sunday night. It might have been the perfect viewing experience imaginable. <laughs> uh, and then, this like, is, um, I know you're, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. I know you're an Edgerton fan, but a uh, hot, hot, hot goss is that he is outstanding in the new Paul Trader movie, Master Gardener. It's like the best oh, work of his career. Yeah, I have my review for Venice booked in. There we and, go, locked in. And like, you know, spoiler alert, doesn't matter what happens. It's Schrader, it's Edgerton, it's five stars but yeah this is three stars <laughs> sorry this is uh in retrospect a three a three at best it is just it felt a bit awards baity i wouldn't begrudge it if it did well at that sort of thing but yeah not something i'm gonna revisit next up film club while a zombie virus breaks out in south korea passengers struggle to survive on a train from seoul to busan so this is actually quite a, you know, a new <coughs> film for Film Club, but, you know, it connects very well, I think, to our two other movies. We've got the train element from the first one, and we've got that great claustrophobia from 13 Lives. Both of you, I'm assuming you've seen that you've seen Train to Busan before? Yes. Yeah, yes, indeed. I actually, I saw Train to Busan at my first Cannes Film Festival in 2016, where it was playing there as part of the Midnight Movies program. Um, and I remember I was uh, I was a little intimidated. I'd never been to the festival before, and it was a very intense competition lineup. And I had seen all of these severe, long European art house films, and then watching this movie was such a tonic because it is just like a no fat on the bones, just like all you know, teeth and nails, really uh, intense action movie, which I appreciated at that moment, especially. And Anna, I remember you're a horror aficionado. How do you think this works in terms of like the zombie movie canon? Um, I think this was uh, a real tonic in terms of a really tired zombie uh, genre at this point. So this comes out in 2016 and there's another really great zombie uh, British film that came out the same year, The Girl with All the Gifts. But at the same time, there had been an oversaturation of zombie stuff. 
it felt like everybody had experimented and tried everything they wanted to do with the undead hordes. Uh, they'd made it big, they'd made it CGI, they'd made it romantic, they'd made it uh, existential, they'd made it into TV shows. And I think we were all collectively done with the zombies. And it really felt, and I remember even going into Train to Busan with a little bit of apprehension, I think I did not see it at Cannes, I saw it at a some public screening or perhaps another London festival screening. I have a vague memory of where I saw it, but I definitely remember seeing it on a big screen and having a heart attack for the entire duration of it. It felt so energized and propulsive and intense. And actually for once, uh, like there were stakes in a zombie film. I feel like the zombie genre is not my preference it's not the horror subgenre that i usually gravitate towards if anything i'm a little bit cynical about it because it's because of just the abundance and the ease with which zombie movies are made it's very hard to make something that actually feels interesting actually something that has characters that has something to say or even just innovates in the way that people are killed by zombies there's only so many way you can bite someone um and and train to busan felt like a really intense character-driven zombie film. You cared and knew enough about the characters to get invested in the story and to care if they were bitten or not. And because of the setting, I feel like it used the the limitations of the train and the speed with which it's it's also a bullet train in the film, the speed with which this train operates so much to its effect and so much also to... Um, really dig into some of the other ideas that exist in the film you know about the division between classes and like who deserves to survive and how do people protect each other and work each other and just the the infrastructure and the interiors of the train are used so cleverly to actually create really memorable really intense um action sequences and i I almost I'm I would almost call it an action horror because it's not necessarily scary it's thrilling. Yeah, no, I mean it, it's it's thrilling, it's exhausting. I kind of you you know after you watch it you almost need to lie down for half an hour to realize that you the points that you have kind of forgot to breathe for long periods of time. Um there is a American kind of remake in it seems to be a little bit development hell. But to me, that seems so unnecessary. (laughs) Yeah, because we've sort of perfected the visuals of storytelling. What kind of matter does the dialogue have? I'm, I'm, as an American, I'm really excited to watch happen and fail. We're about to have a wave of like bad K remakes in the same way we had a bunch of bad Japanese remakes in the 2000s, because Mm. that's what people were all jazzed about at the time. And so like, what is going to be our American Korean the Americanized Korean like dark water like what is what is the uh, the worst of those but no uh, Anna definitely hit on a lot of my big points which is that um, character is established and maintained in such a more careful way uh, Ma Dong-suk who went on to be in Eternals and Choi Woo-shik who was the son from Parasite both give these fantastic performances as these developed people who have these like frailties and they have these insecurities and they think about doing something moral. Maybe they don't, maybe they do, and maybe they don't later on. Um, Whereas I feel like in bullet train, all these very colorful characters really don't amount to much more than the sum of their affectations. Like everyone has these big costumes and like big hair. And it feels like they're following those, the performance rather than there being something 
human at the root of those. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, the other one is that you talked about usage of visual space, which like is really the name of the game here. I feel like this is a movie that has an understanding of why you would set a movie on a train in the first place, which is that it is a contained linear space. And so in the context of a zombie movie, which I think where they lose me a lot is that zombies are either very easy to elude or they juke the game by making the zombies incredibly fast. And I think that Train to Bouchon lets the zombies be zombies, but because you were in a train, it gives you literally nowhere to run, that you cannot go around these zombies. You can only retreat or go through them. And so that creates these circumstances where you have no choice but to mount these like really intense action sequences and it feels called for. And they're using like the overhead luggage storage space. They're using like the mechanics of the auto opening doors. Like they are thinking about being on a train much more than uh, uh, than Bullet Train, which I feel like has a lot of fight sequences in what seem to be very spacious train cars. I'm, I've never been aboard a Japanese Bullet Train, but for instance, they're in like a, one of them looks like a hotel bar and they're having like oh, yeah. a full fight in there. And I'm like, if mm-hmm. the point is not that you're both cramped and can't move, why are we on a train? Um, I have been on that Bullet Train and I can say the train to Busan's much more accurate. It's not kind of quite the like, Orient Express, Express Hall. I mean, they're wonderful. I had no insults to the bullet train. Thank you very much to the fine people mm. of Japan for getting me around their country so well. But um, <laughs> yeah, um, it does seem like um, that this is actually a much more clever use of what is a fascinating space. But I also really appreciated, maybe it's just COVID brain coming back to it, that it's like there's a real sense of like how contagious this was, like the mm-hmm. movement with which this kind of disease spreads. Like these zombies aren't particularly invested in eating each other. It's more about kind of passing on that mm. disease and like Infection, coming out of... Yeah. Yeah, and coming out of what we've just gone through, it's kind of interesting to see, like, who does society protect? And, like, who do we sacrifice for? What do we do as a collective? Um, But, yeah, maybe that's a bit like, um, you know, that... um, boss baby thing where it's just like i can only Big see COVID me- i can only see covid metaphors everywhere <laughs> <laughs> well i think it is still kind of rich in metaphor even if this was a pre-covid world it is definitely about you know um swarming of society and feeling like you know you were opposed by people who were not like you i think there's like an individualism versus collectivism kind of thing to be looked at in the movie yeah no i think i think it's uh, a necessary after effect of of the pandemic or in COVID brain is that every time we look at a movie that was made pre-pandemic times, we if it fits, we will necessarily apply that reading to it because we our way of looking at the world and even of thinking about contagion and infection and um, other spaces and collective spaces, especially, I think has completely changed. Um, so I think that's a that's a really interesting point. And you know, there's I remember watching uh, not you know, to jump too far from zombies to vampires, but only lovers left alive during one of the London lockdowns and thought, oh, this is a pandemic movie because I'm doing exactly what Tom Hiddleston's character is doing, just sitting in my house, listening to records and not talking to anyone for weeks on end and not, you know, hundreds of years, but still. Um, But there's one other point that I wanted to make about Train to Busan, which I thought was quite, it's, it, one of the things that zombie movies have tended to do in this kind of very peak zombie era of the late 2000s and the mid 2010s is this idea with the visual idea of zombies as a horde like their power 
is the fact that they multiply so quickly and that there's so many of them. So even if you're fast and smart and you have all of these self-defense and uh, mechanisms built around you to protect yourself from being infected, just a sheer amount of them will overpower you. Obviously, the the apex of this is World War Z, where it's just CGI zombies creating um, ma- a mountains Ooh, of each yeah. other. Yeah, and there is one moment in Train to Busan which I loved, which was such a much smarter play on that, where zombies do kind of have this shared collective brain, where they know that they can just create a wave of zombies and try to get at what they want, even though they don't know what they want because they're not really conscious beings anymore. And and visually, I found that really really powerful because it's actually people like the the special effects are used so sparingly and so beautifully in this film that you never get just a big potato mash of cgi (laughs) bodies it's actually you feel the physicality of this horde that's trying to get at the characters and it is actually really anxiety inducing maybe this is a, a hot take but uh something about me is that i would not want to survive a zombie invasion because every time every time i see a zombie movie i'm like i don't want to have to live in this world because you know eventually when choi wushik or whoever they get off the train and is like all right i'm like what kind of world are you entering now you have to deal with zombies more for the rest of your life and you're always going to be worried about this you've lost a ton of your loved ones like you're not going to have creature comforts because you can't pop on down to the supermarket it's full of zombies what have you what quality of life is that i would rather this is this doesn't sound good i would rather join the zombie horde (laughs) and be a zombie because they all seem to be having a fine time of things none of them seem too bothered about their their zombiness and so i think in in the post-apocalyptic divide (laughs) clearly it's preferable to be on the zombie side you're on the winning side oh yeah i would actually take that and i've had this conversation many at party at 2 a.m I'd say any apocalypse. Go out in the first wave. <laughs> I do not want to live to. Yeah. Oh my god. Thank I don't want to rebuild. So it. glad to hear sympathetic. Uh, I don't have any useful information. I can't make a generator. Power goes out. I'm I don't oh, have. God. I don't have skills in the post-apocalyptic world. I am. I am an all right cook. I am not a good forager. I am a non-existent hunter. I don't have a ton of skills to bring to the table in a you know the road type situation. Okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go out. I want to go out too. Like we're all writers. Uh, what are we going to do in the post? <laughs> we're going to read world? books. Oh my god! Do, program us some puppet shows, Anna. Well, do you know what? I probably will in my little wilderness cabin that I build myself with my bare hands. Puppet shows will be Good the only art form that survives because we won't have movies anymore. Well, I will still have my physical media. Thank you very much. This is this is why I keep buying Blu-rays. It's for the inevitable zombie slash climate change apocalypse. What are you going to play um, them on? That's my that's PS4. I guess so. You're assuming that there's still like a working electrical grid that you can just. I'll pop figure on your it TV. out. Okay, I'll figure all right. It out. I, I will, I'm, I will I'm... check in with you then. I'm coming to your house. <laughs> I definitely don't want to go. I want to live the I am legend life. I want to be the last <laughs> person standing. I want to just be isolated in my home, preferably in a big city where I can walk around with a deserted city, be killing a bunch of zombies on my way over to a deserted supermarket, which is actually the reason why I'd want to stay alive is to be able to go to a massive supermarket. You have your run of the supermarket. You can take exactly. whatever you want. Yeah, oh I want to I have a little montage of me 
picking out things and never paying for them. So you're more like um, every day. Zombie Land, I guess, is more what you have in mind because they just yeah. ransack that supermarket. They ransack the hostess truck. They got well, a pretty good thing going. There is always a supermarket ransacking scene in every single zombie movie. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? People love mm-hmm. retrieving supplies. It's like a makeover montage for your romantic comedies. The <laughs> same goes for zombie movies. There's always a supermarket ransacking scene. And they're yeah. always set to walking on sunshine for <laughs> God, complete opposite, Anna. My dream in the apocalypse is to be in like Independence Day, you know, the people that are welcoming the aliens and the sign, and then they're <laughs> gone before they even know that anything is amiss. You die happy. <laughs> no, I'm going to be Jeff Goldblum. Uh, I'm going to be making snarky comments until the very end and just going to turn around to everyone and be like, I told you so, didn't I? Well, and then we'll probably be murdered by my own. (laughs) Well, listeners, you know who to call if something goes down, and it is not me. Anna Bogutskaya can be found on Twitter. Her DMs are open. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, the applications begin now for my post-apocalyptic zombie hut. You're going to have to repopulate the world with somebody. Ah, well, if you've got thoughts on how you would cope in a post-apocalyptic hellscape or on these films, you can email truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at LWLives. Next week, it's my most anticipated film of the summer, Jordan Peele's Nope. As it's such a special film, we are dedicating the entire episode to it with a double film club of Jaws and the Birds, films that without giving away anything are very relevant to Jordan Peele's latest bad miracle. Thanks very much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week with Charles Bromesco and Anna Bogutskaya. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Jake Cunningham. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com listen. Shopify.com listen.